0: On this episode of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, we're talking about redefining safety and risk management in road transportation with Mark Goodstein from Streetscope. The InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. This episode of the InsureTech Geek Podcast is brought to you by Terra. Learn more about our cloud-native risk management information system at terra.insure. That's T-E-R-R-A.insure. insure. And we are back with another great episode for all of our InsureTech geeks out there coming to hang out with us. It's a beautiful day here in Texas in the middle of the winter. Balmy 65 and a little bit breezy. It's all nice. Uh, Rob, I think it's the same for you down in San Antonio.
1: It is James, and I'm 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 sure I'm going to get some hate from our our audience over this. But uh, yesterday I had a headache half the day, and I was like, "Why is my head hurt so much?" And I took headache medicine, didn't do it or whatever. And then I realized I actually got a sunburn. Like I was walking the dog, I was in the sun too long, like <laughs> not didn't, didn't put on sunscreen. I was like, "Oh, we're we're already there. We're already there. It's still no, a middle no. winter in February, but uh, yeah, we're right at that time in Texas."
0: Well, we're at that time in Texas when my allergies go bananas because the cedars are popping right now and it's uh, murdering me, but that's okay. That's okay. It's okay. It's all good. With us from Northern California, uh, north of San Francisco, Mark Goodstein. Mark, how are you doing today? I am doing well. It's great. Uh, So, Mark, we love talking about insurance. We love talking about tech. But more than that, we love talking about the people that make it up. So let's talk about you for a second. Um, tell me, where were you born and raised, and what did you dream of doing when you were a kid? <laughs>
2: uh, Pasadena, California, born uh, and mostly raised. And uh, I think I probably wanted to be a physicist like my dad.
0: Yeah, nice. What your dad? Where was your dad a physicist at?
2: At Caltech.
0: Really? Did yeah. he just did he teach, research? Did he do stuff like uh,
2: that? He. Did both. He researched and, uh, uh, in low temperature and solid state physics. And he taught, in fact, he was the creator of a, of a physics series called the mechanical universe that was on PBS forever and still is sometimes, but that rep really physics class. Yeah.
0: The mechanical universe yeah. on PBS. He was the host. He was the host. That is so cool. Look at that. Okay, from Caltech. There he is. I just found it. I'm going to have to watch this. Dr. David Goodstein at Caltech. That is he. Okay, well, I've got it on my list to watch now. That's super snazzy. Uh, you know, my dad was an engineer, and I wanted to be an engineer too. Except, I thought being an engineer meant that you wore a striped cap and drove trains. I didn't really understand <laughs> exactly what it was until I went to a until I went to a high school for engineers, and I'm like, "Oh, this is engineering." <laughs> and I still wanted to do it, so it was it was a, a fun deal. Let's uh, kind of walk through your resume real quick, because you have a you have a few stops um, uh, along the way. Uh, you went to university of Chicago, got a, and you did not get a bachelor's in physics, you got a bachelor's in history. What was the, what was the aim there? Uh,
2: you know, I started out, uh, fooling myself, uh, in my first couple of years, thinking that I wanted to be a scientist, but then realized that I didn't. And, uh, I I ended up taking a break for a year, uh, and worked in a hospital, uh, in in a, in a biological lab. Um, as a bench scientist for a year and uh, realized at the end of that time that I was done. Uh, And so came back and decided to uh, focus on things that actually interested me. And that was history.
0: Very cool. I'm a a bit of a history nerd uh, as well. I did not study other than the required history classes in my business degree. I did not study history, but I love uh, Eric Larson's my favorite history author ever. Love everything that he wrote. I got hooked on all of his writing when he wrote "Devil in the White City" about uh, this, you know, serial murderer in Chicago during the Chicago Exposition in the late 1800s. Fascinating book. Then he wrote about um, Isaac Storm. Then the the Great Galveston Hurricane of 1901. Then he wrote about the invention of the wireless telegraph. I mean, he he just all these amazing books. uh, "Splendid and the Vile" about Winston Churchill. I learned what a what a eccentric man Winston Churchill was from him. And then I got hooked on. Um hardcore history with uh, Dan Carlin, uh, the podcast. I mean four to five hour episodes of a podcast about history. so um what what's like of all your things you studied in history? like what's your favorite genre or phase or or you know region like what 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 do you geek out on in history?
2: Well, I'd have to say uh, you know i I was in school in in uh, uh, nineteen ninety. Uh, when uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And so uh, I I had just happened to have taken a class from a professor on a survey course in the history of the modern Middle East. And he was on what was then called the McNeil Air Hour, uh, basically every week talking about what was going on. And um, I had a class with nine other students, and it was pretty extraordinary. So I ended up Choosing the professor rather than the subject, which I regret. I think I probably most am most interested in um, medieval, uh, the medieval period from Europe through uh, what we call the Middle East. Uh, so the Ottoman Empire and, and uh, France and Italy and so forth, uh, countries that didn't really exist back then, but sort of. Did.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I think that's a fascinating. Yeah, I get frustrated when historical references or studies are really constrained to Western Europe and the United States because I'm, I, I've gotten to travel all over the world. And I, I remember <laughs> what, uh, 10 years ago, I went to a con- uh, I, I was been speaking at conferences since 2005, but, uh, but uh, 2014, I believe, or 13 or 14, I got invited to speak, participate in a conference in China. And so it was in Xi'an, China, X-I-A-N, which is kind of like the St. Louis of China, because it's like the gateway to the West, you know, except there's no arch, they have a, it's a walled city. And then the great wall of China is nearby. And then the terracotta soldiers are there. That's, that's the home, the terracotta soldiers. And I was doing like a tour around the city on the wall. And like, uh, in the year 1000 AD, the city had like hundreds of thousands of people, they lived inside of this wall, they had running water and it's like holy crap like like a thousand years ago it was a very modern society right here with several hundred thousand people i mean and it just kind of opens your brain a little bit and makes you realize how uh, how myopic we can be sometimes my- like-
2: exactly exactly yeah
0: <laughs> my- you know but i think when you study technology it's really helpful and you build technology it's really helpful to have a good understanding of the past so you understand uh you know the trends in technology and really how tightly intertwined technological innovation is to historical shifts. You know, Yeah, it's yeah, a, it, it's, it's a really, really big deal when a, when a new technology hits the, hits the world,
2: right? Yes, it is. It, uh, it has enormous impacts, right? We've seen it over and over.
0: Yeah. Over and over yeah. and over again, you know, Super cool. So let's go through a couple of stops on your resume and just, and, and talk about this. And let's jump to your, your latest stop. Um, you've, you've worked across the, um, the, the space. Like you, you are actually a founding executive at idea lab 96 to 98, the idea lab, like the, the idea lab,
2: the idea lab, um, okay. is,
0: yep. which is super cool. I, I just need to geek out. Tell me about yep. that.
2: You know, uh, uh, in fact, my sister, uh, started it with Bill Gross, uh, oh, in holy fact, crap. started it, uh, in, in her bedroom, uh, uh, oh. because at the time, Bill was still focused on knowledge Adventure, uh, which was an educational software, uh, company. And, uh, I joined a few months later and, uh, my job was to start companies was to figure out how to take an idea and turn it into uh, a concept that could be funded or, or uh, could grow on its own. Uh, and ended up starting several different companies at Idealab in, in different tours of duty. So I started uh, a company called intranets.com and then I went to to.com, which pioneered paid search and then left for a couple of years and came back and started uh, a, a sort of Tinker Toys for Adults uh, company called Xbeams. That, We decided to pull the plug on because we realized that in retail uh, inventory is basically consignment. So we were paying to have our kits inside of uh, retail outlets. And if they didn't sell, we were taking them back. Um, So that was a big bite at the apple and we decided not to to pursue it. But then we did uh, find, which turned into X1, which was a desktop search product, which is still around. Um, And after that. I uh, left, I think, not for the final time, because I came back and ended up starting another company many years later, uh, which is part of this story. But uh, um, left to start the uh, Automotive X Prize.
0: Now, what I connection mean, was there to the Ansari X Prize, like the major X Prize, with yeah, that yes. Peter that Peter Diamandis got involved in?
2: So, uh, the X Prize Foundation, <laughs> their first big prize was the Ansari X Prize. And uh, I think in 2004, they awarded it uh, and it was the biggest, you know, a- after the, cult, the 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 capture of Saddam Hussein, I think it was the biggest story of the year uh, in terms of media mentions and so forth all over the world. And it was a big deal. I mean, it was it was uh, talk about, uh, uh, you know, maybe no enormous advances in technology, but the fact that we could do this ourselves uh, without government support, etc., um was a pretty earth-shaking event, and, uh, you know, the history of competitive prizes that would spur entire industries was older than the Ansari X Prize, but they really nailed it. And they were looking for something that they could do that was just as big, just as impactful, uh, and they needed someone to come on and, and do it. and Uh, Peter and I had common interests and contacts and someone introduced us and he asked me to come on board and start this prize. And so I came on and we raised $25 million, more than that, 27, and, uh, established the rules for a a competition. And I think the only thing we actually achieved was to coin a term miles per gallon equivalent MPGE, um. Uh, because we wanted, you know, a fuel neutral and a technology neutral competition to get to a hundred miles per gallon, et cetera. And, uh, it was, we, we, did it in a principled way, but I don't think we ended up having as big of an impact as the Ansari X-Prize.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, the Ansari had a, had a major impact. I, I met Peter at abundance 360. I, I'm an alum of that program and really enjoyed it and, um, <laughs> really with, yeah, impressive vision to, to pull that much money together and uh, have that big of an impact. And of course now it is to see what's actually going on in space and space flight, um, is a direct line. I mean, the, the so, oh, that's a super direct line to that text. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a straight line, (laughs) so yeah, that's exciting. So you, you, you've moved through a few other stops along the way. Let's talk about, um, scoutable, let's talk about not scoutables really, but like. You can talk about scoutables, AI Pod, but really like what led to street scope? Like what was the, the founding story there?
2: I'd say that, you know, scoutables is fun, but it, it was, a uh, um, it, the only connection is that is the insurance connection. Um, we, uh, I was back at Idealab lab, uh, for something else and bill was walking around, uh, talking about some company that had just raised an enormous amount of money to build an autonomous control system for, for a car. And uh, this is probably 2015, 16, something like that. we had all seen the DARPA Grand Challenge. We always, you know, we, we knew what was going on. But um, he looked at me and said, you know, wh- how can it be that we have Caltech, Art Center, and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory here in Pasadena, and we don't have a company that is building an autonomous vehicle. Why? And so we started chit-chatting and and talking about different people. And he said, okay, okay, great, great. That's a great idea. Well, I dragged out some idea that, that we had had um, a few years ago, a few years before that. Um, and he said, well, that's, that's great. I'd love to do it, but who, who could lead it? And so we started talking about some People and I, I suggested a, a mutual friend of ours named Eric Antonson, who was then the chief technologist at Northrop Grumman, and you know Bill said, "Nah, Eric would never leave that job." And Eric had been a professor at Caltech before, and he had been you know the, the CTO at JPL for a while, which is a position that the faculty at Caltech fill, and uh, you know he would be ideal for this kind of job. Um, Bill didn't believe it, but I was having a drink with Eric that night. So of course I brought it up. Um, And then one thing led to another and uh, Bill and Eric went and pitched Bessemer Ventures and he walked out with a check. I mean, Eric had never pitched a VC in his life. He walks in and gets a check in his first meeting. I thought, okay, this is- uh,
0: Well, that'll ruin you for life.
2: (laughs) but the combination of Bill and Eric, you know, in terms of, of ability to communicate a message to a, a very wide audience and uh, belief that you could actually solve the core problems, that was a, a good bet on their part. Um, and we tried to solve what we thought was gonna be a, a, a very, and still is a very large problem for cities, right? How can cities manage the deployment of these technologies in a safe way, in an equitable way? Uh, How can they manage the sort of the data implications and everything else um, from these roving sensors with cameras and LIDARs and radars and whatever else? Um, And we realized about six months into it that we were too early. Uh, And that may not be uh, controversial now, because everyone knows it now, but back then it was pretty controversial. And we realized then that the, the consistent ability to evaluate objectively, evaluate safety was probably the biggest obstacle to the wide scale deployment of autonomous technologies. And we all believed in it. We thought that it would make cities better and safer and driving on country roads safer, everything, logistics. But if you can't prove it safe, you can't get there. So we uh, wound the company down because our investors didn't believe that was a big enough vision, and we started our company StreetScope in 2019.
0: And what does StreetScope do?
2: Well, we invented a method, uh, a measure of collision hazard. So uh, you know, we we all take a test when we're 16 years old, 15 and three quarters. Um, and, uh, we are granted a license to drive a car, uh, a vehicle that could, you know, and does kill people when it's driven improperly. And there's no other test. We get old, we get glasses, we get other infirmities, and we still drive. Our, our license is not taken away. Um, that is sort of state of the art. And then we looked at a bunch of other sectors and... You know, if you're designing safe streets, you're designing a new parking lot with ingress and egress out into streets. State of the art today is still, you know, traffic planners and engineers design with their gut. They design design, uh, and decide the way it should be uh, uh, built, and then they wait three to five years and wait for collisions to decide whether they had a, a, a safe design or not. That is, you know frankly a little unethical if we can figure out how not to wait for collisions and so uh, and and that's just you know let's call it the built environment around transportation when you when it comes to autonomous systems or partially autonomous systems if there's no independent objective approach to the evaluation of that safe movement that's also the same thing I mean we're waiting for collisions and even today you know waymo, they simulate and they, and, and they drive, but they're counting collisions to demonstrate the safety of their autonomous system. It just seems unethical. And so we invented a measure of collision hazard that could be used by all these different constituent industries uh, to evaluate and to uh, demonstrate publicly and objectively that their systems are safe or that their streets are safe or whatever else. And we have been
1: uh, going to market ever since. Awesome, Rob. Yeah, Mark, it's really fascinating, and and uh, I've been following the journey of, of StreetScope for a little bit of time. Even remember the the AI Pod uh, days. So I, I'm really fascinated by this. Right, when is the system? We've all heard about AVs for years. We're all excited about them, right? We kind of definitely have fallen into the, the Gartner hype cycle or the hype and then this tr- trough. But, you know, you asked the key question, right? When is this safe to, to to deploy? So I'm just curious, like, how do you do that? Who are your clients? Are they, they cities, municipalities, right? Are they, they are private customers? Are they people thinking about operating these fleets? Like, maybe you can talk just a little bit more about, you know, what is the product? Who is it for? Or maybe you have a range of products.
2: Well, we we, ag- we actually have one product uh, which generates a, 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 a data stream, if you will, or a set of information products that can be useful to all these downstream industries. So uh, we have industry, we have customers in the, uh, let's call it the infrastructure space, so the evaluation of and mitigation of dangerous intersections and, and garages and things like that. Um, or should we, as uh, a, a, you know, a city or a municipality, uh, deploy an autonomous system on a given stretch of road? How can we evaluate that? Our uh, product is uniquely useful for that kind of, of endeavor. Uh, we uh, measure the the hazard posed between all pairs of objects on a continuous basis. So, sort of like temperature, um, we have a continuous measure of hazard and. It's objective and it's not making any assumptions or anything like that. So it can be useful in different contexts, but it's the same data everywhere. So I'll give you a few examples. Although the the quick answer is it turns out insurance, not self-serving because I'm on this podcast, but insurance ends up being one of the primary drivers for this because at the end of the day, it's insurance that's left holding the bag. Uh, They have to provide coverage uh, for, you know, uh, property and casualty type uh, insurance, for infrastructure, for uh, uh, operating insurance, for, for autonomous fleets or semi-autonomous, or you know, even the, the vehicles driven by us, humans. Um, and by the way, our measure doesn't distinguish between a computer driving a vehicle and you or, or me driving a vehicle. To, to us, vehicles are black boxes. So whatever control decisions they make, we are measuring, and we're measuring the hazard that they pose. But it's, you know, if you're a if you're an insurance company right now, you're using trailing indicators to make assessments about the, the safety of a of a given system or of a fleet or of a, of an individual. How many times do they had an accident? What kind of accidents? Um, trailing indicators are, like we said, sort of ethically challenged. If we have the ability to understand and evaluate safety in a way that is not does not require collisions. Um, those developing autonomous systems, right? They need objective functions to, to to understand how well they have progressed, how version one is not as good as version two, et cetera, and why. Um, so uh, objective functions in that context, so we have a, a partner, a very prominent engineering consulting firm, uh, uh, an engineering services firm that, that does work for every OEM on the planet, uh, those building cars um, that are, uh, that are integrating our measure of hazard into their uh, early stage uh, vehicle development services. So when companies come to them and want to develop a vehicle, they have to follow standards of safety and so forth. Uh, in this world, it's called ISO 26262, uh, which is the last time I'm gonna say that, but <laughs> but our measure fits quite well into the context of that kind of, of engineering uh, project. And of course in insurance, um, the problem with trailing indicators, or the use of things like harsh events, which are useful but not that useful and don't correlate very effectively to loss, um, but they're there and they're they're better there than nothing, if you will. But our measure provides context, so it's not just that someone slammed on the brakes a few extra times; it's that we know that they slammed on the brakes, not around anyone in a dangerous manner, but because they forgot their keys at home. Or, uh, you know, the swerve that they did was not because they were driving unsafely, but because they were avoiding some hazard in the road that would have caused damage to their vehicle or caused damage to somebody else. So that's that's the basic picture, if you will.
0: Very interesting. So. I was a city councilman and a planning and zoning commissioner before that. I dealt with road regulations on a regular basis. And actually, I I led a series of regulatory changes in College Station around block length signage, a whole bunch of things that we, we did. But also tried to make sure that we would be a prime city for two things, drone delivery and 5G deployment. And so we became a test bed for 5G deployment. Uh, and College Station, we also became the very first location for Amazon Prime Air to locate. So I actually, the, the drone delivery center is just about a block from here where all the drones take off from to deliver things around College Station. So, um, re- you know, reg- the regulators matter, uh, and obviously to, to cruise, And let's talk about GM Cruise for a second because they got shut down by the San Francisco regulators, right?
2: Yes, they did. Uh, And, you know, I I don't know much about what's going on inside. Um, uh, Unfortunately, safety is still one of these things that people compete on. And so each developer of technologies, of of automated technologies, and by the way, not just what they call ADS, full automation, but also ADAS, like, you know, the the systems that help you and take control of the vehicle. Uh, You know, the, the problems that Cruise was having, which are now well well documented and, and, and talked about included things like you know stopping uh, on top of a, a fire hose or uh, you know uh, performing uh, um, you know bricking in the middle of, of a street because it didn't know what to do uh, these aren't things that we can necessarily help with I can't that the a collision hazard measure is not the end all be all of safety it is just about the likelihood that you will collide. That's it. And the whole point about our measure is that instead of waiting for collisions to happen and then using that kind of of metric to evaluate, it's actually taking advantage of all of the kinematic encounters that you have before a collision, right? The you and me coming up towards each other and then each making a left. Well, you know, we were coming towards each other, but there was no real hazard. But driving side by side or getting too close to the the, the the oncoming traffic, things like that, those are genuine hazards. And anytime you've sat in a passenger seat with someone else driving and they are, you know, maybe a little bit heavy on the the, the gas and a little bit heavy on the brake, and you feel it in your gut as you're slowing down to a, a vehicle, that's the hazard that we're measuring. It just, you feel it in your gut, but that's exactly what we're talking about. But all of those encounters, are the kinds of things that, that are necessary to actually understand uh, and factor in to evaluate. Um, I can't talk about crews uh, not because I don't want to talk about crews. We want them as a customer. We we think that they should be. Um, they are not yet. But uh, there are a whole a whole bunch of things that a company that is automating technology automating uh, transportation has to take into account, even beyond collisions, uh, to be you know good citizens
0: inside of a city. But ultimately what you're selling is a data set, right?
2: That's exactly right. So uh, an objective set of data that can be used uh, in an independent way. And this is a, a crucial, a crucial aspect, right? Every different company, and actually it's a big it's a big um, it's a big point to make with respect to insurance as well, because every uh, autonomous company needs to have insurance. And every single autonomous company has their own method of determining safety and determining when they will deploy, but no insurance company is understanding how that works. And so all they can do is default to, well, you're gonna have to have double the, the rates. Meanwhile, the companies are saying, not only do we want coverage, but you've gotta lower the rates. Well, then use a standard approach to to evaluating, evaluating your safety, right? So that's the world that we're coming into and that's why we wanna be, um, used and why we think we are uniquely useful
0: and why not just autonomous car companies can use it, but also all the carriers too. I that's mean,
2: exactly right. Yeah, no. Yeah. We, so we, if,
0: we, if they all use the same data set, they can make better decisions on the risk, right?
2: That's exactly right. And, and you can start comparing apples to apples, right? Instead of, uh, you know, whatever the, the opposite of that is, we, we work very closely with uh, a couple of very large insurance companies, one of which is Munich Re, uh, Munich Re has a, a large commercial fleet business in North America, and we are helping them uh, evaluate with our context-aware uh, data stream the, uh, the, the activities of their mostly human-driven fleets. So although they do uh, actually work in the a- autonomous space as well, we are uh, helping on, on both sides.
1: Yeah, just a, a couple of thoughts, Mark, and would love to have you chime in. Number one, right? I, I always worry about. We talked about GM and, and Cruise, like, um, you know, what standard is good enough, right? To 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 say, like, it, perfection is, is not the answer in terms of autonomous vehicles, right? And kind of letting that paradigm shift happen, right? We know there's tens of thousands of people that are dying on roadways each and every year from human drivers. Right. And that's kind of the baseline. So to me, it's partly about incremental progress. So it's like, you know, are we going to hit a point where the autonomous vehicles are safer than humans, even if not, they're not as safe as they possibly could. Right. And so establishing that baseline right through some of the, the objective data that you've got, I think could, kind of help right as we come to that tipping point in, in decisions as it relates to that so curious are your thoughts on on that and the other thing is you know personal to me is elderly drivers you know both my mother and uh, my father um, you know, had some challenges later in life. They both drove into their 80s. Uh, thankfully, neither of them were in, involved in a serious accident. Uh, but my mother, for instance, actually fell asleep one time. She kind of took her foot off the gas and ended up kind of gliding into somebody on a country road that was at a stop sign and kind of like nudged them. But that could have been a much more serious accident mm-hmm. than my father, you know, having personally been with him for many years and seeing him drive the wrong way on a divided highway and, you know, not see red lights and things like that. Nothing was close to being. An, an actual accident right but these are things that are of a concern and um you, you know trying to have those conversations with him and ultimately his license you know needed to be renewed I think he probably knew he was going to pass the test but it's like you know trying to get him over to like hey dad I think it's it's time driving I know you know I had difficulties having this conversation with both parents I think many people are as we are in an aging uh society you know the more and more these are going to be Challenging conversation, so I'm imagining that there you know potentially could be applications there in terms of you know as we age, right? How effective are our elderly drivers?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the, what we have, uh, I've got lots of thoughts on what you just said. I, I'm all over the map. The um, I think that. Uh, just like I said earlier, uh, you know, harsh breaking events or harsh, harsh swerving events, things like that are, are not necessarily correlative. They're, they're helpful though, um, but at the end of the day, if you can, and I think you, 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 you said something that I think is a key part of this use of the data stream. When you're measuring something, which is exactly what we're doing, we are just measuring safety. We're not making assumptions or, or, or anything else. But when you have a ruler, the thing you do is you compare right? So you baseline. And, uh, you know, your dad may have been a great driver when he was 40. And uh, there's a probably, if, if we had uh, drive data of his when he was 40 to compare to now, you could make an objective case that he is not as good a driver right now. But there are 80-year-olds out there that are good drivers and, and do well. So there's no rule that you can establish. Uh, I think in the same way, and I'm not advocating that you uh, smoke in the in the cab of a truck while you're driving, but does that really correlate? I think there are probably drivers who, when they're smoking, are less aware and are more dangerous, but there are probably just as many that are just as safe and so it's it's hard to to do that but if you've got drive data and the you know when we came to market uh, there are all of these geometric sensors out there like radar and lidar, but they're not everywhere and they're very expensive. So we made the decision to use cameras, which are ubiquitous to, uh, as the sort of main sensor for us to come to market. So all we need is a dash cam looking forward to be able to understand the context in which you're driving and and in which you're making uh, decisions as a human or as a computer. Um, And we can baseline that, right? We can baseline, you when you were forty versus you when you were fifty. If we have a little bit of drive data from both, we can baseline version one of the autonomous uh, stack versus version two of the autonomous stack. We can baseline, in fact, uh, when it comes to autonomy. I mean, we can we can tell the we can give you a baseline for the activity uh, for your for your your behavior uh, in in context of the kind of sensor package that you're using. Right? Can I use a sensor? Can I use fewer sensors on the top of my vehicle? Um, Can I drive just as safely with fewer sensors? Can I drive it with a different configuration? Those are the kind of of things that uh, an engineer might want to use uh, our data stream for. Whereas insurance just wants to understand and baseline the the behavior of the fleet in general, because that's what they, at the end of the day, underwrite um, and want to understand.
1: So. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and I think, Mark, you know, for a long time, right, uh, insurers had information about the vehicle, right, through the the VIN, right, and they can get the symbol right. and the model year and the make and all that. And then they can look at the driver, right, age, general, marital status, you know, miles driven, things like that. Um, and you try to combine those and get some estimated risk. But what you're missing is the context, right? You don't know the driving environment. You don't know what they were actually doing. And so, like Telemax has started to kind of give us a view, like you're mentioning through harsh braking and stuff, but having the additional context that you're able to provide now, you're able to kind of have not just the driver data, not just the vehicle data, but the, the, the actual context in which you know, the, the, the actual risk is being encountered day in, day out. You're, you know not, you're, and then to your point before your only data point on risk was really claims, like did a claim occur or not, not all the, the near misses and such. And so you're able to put that in context now.
2: Yeah. It's even, I, Dave was just telling me, my colleague, Dave, um, was just telling me, uh, that he was trying to get insurance for his daughter and he called up to get insurance and, uh, he talked to the uh the, the 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 woman on the other side about two vehicles they were considering for her and the quotes were almost uh one was double the other and there was no difference between the vehicles there was no difference the driver had no history and the vehicles all had the same safety equipment on them but the 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 insurance computer spit out two numbers one of which was twice the other why
0: Well, it made his decision easier. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, geez. Did he ever find out the contributing factor that made it? He probably probably didn't. They probably wouldn't disclose it.
2: Well, I'm not sure they knew the answer. The person on the other end of the line had never been asked the question. When he asked, you know, is there someone at your company that I can call to ask? Just, I'm curious. She said, I have no idea. No one's ever asked this question. (laughs) Oh. But I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a different domain, but it's the same, it's the same set of, you know, we're using, uh, we're using what we have. This is, you know, the joke keeps on coming up, but it's the, it's the old joke about the drunk looking for their streetlights. Where do they look for them? Under the, under the lamp, because that's where the light is. Well, you can only use what you have. And so for a long time, we have, you know, we have. Harsh events because smartphones came out and accelerometers and gyroscopes came out that were so cheap but had such great data. Well, we have the data. Let's use it. Just turns out that it doesn't correlate as well as the hype cycle said that it would.
0: Well, um, let's let's close out by um, just talking very briefly about what's next. We're at we're at time, so just tell me like what's the what's the next thing for you and the company.
2: Well. The Next thing is more and more customers. So we are um, we are working with a, a large Japanese insurer to help them assess mainly infrastructure type questions uh, at companies called MSNAD. Uh, we're working with Munich Re on their fleet and, and other things, and we've been demonstrating. They they believe in us and believe uh, that we have an actuarially significant data stream that can help them make better bets um, and. Uh, you know, I think that that relationship will blossom this year. And I think we are, uh, because of them and others, also now working for the first time with the developers of autonomous systems and and OEMs and with our partnership with FEV, that makes it even stronger and more credible. Uh, so I think you're, you're going to see a, a lot of activity this year. You know, we've been, we've been building the technology and we've been bootstrapping. We haven't raised any venture capital to do this. Um, we've been bootstrapping, which means we move a little bit more slowly, but much more methodically. And we now have a platform that can ingest data at scale. Uh, we have uh, we have outputs that are relevant to our customers in the insurance space, in the infrastructure space, and in the what I would call vehicle development space, um, functional safety, if, if you know about that world. Um, so we're gonna be um, m- moving much more quickly this year.
0: I like to hear that. Excited to see what comes out of this, and uh, certainly I'm excited to talk to you. Some of the companies you have been involved with, I have read about and studied, so it's neat to talk to someone who was on the inside working on it. So it's uh, really great to see that you and your brain and your colleagues and their brains are working on a problem that's so important uh, to insurance. Certainly, we've seen a lot of radical changes in, in auto insurance, and uh, I'm, I'm a believer they could use a hell of a lot more data when making their decisions um, so you don't end up with a lot of the illogical logic boxes that you <laughs> that you uh, just described to us That when, when they get to quoting and underwriting and making decisions about who to write and what to write and when. So uh, yeah. excellent discussion, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. As always, Rob, thank you as well for being my most illustrious, most interesting co-host.
1: Yeah, <laughs> appreciate it, James and Mark. So glad to have you on and really glad to um, to see the progress and con- wish you continued success. Thank you very much.
0: Awesome. Great. And to all of our listeners out in listener land, this has been another great episode of the Insured Tech Geek Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today to geek out our interview with Mark Goodstein from Streetscope. See you next time. This has been the Insure Tech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge, jbknowledge.com. The Insure Tech Geek Podcast is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith at endofinsurance.com. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to meeting up again. We're taking you on a journey through Insure tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out.